1: Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Thank you everyone who came to the Hilo experience in Manchester on Monday night. There was no FAR evacuation this time. Which we consider a progress. Such a lovely audience. Just enough
2: white wine extrovertism from some audience members, just a little sprinkling, but not too much
1: for it to be obnoxious. You can really track the audience uh, via the sort of alcohol content given the evening. So, our first show in London was on a Tuesday night, quite boozy, quite buzzy. Yeah. Dublin, Sunday night. Subdued. A bit more gentle. Yeah. Monday night, they're gearing up, but it's still pretty punchy.
2: I think Monday night can actually be a pretty dangerous night because you've had the calm of Sunday. So Monday feels like you're just ready to
1: kick off again. I want to do one on a Friday or a Saturday night purely for an anthropological experiment. Do you know what? The Friday night is pretty
2: dicey whenever I've done live shows before. I remember doing one weekend one in Brighton and one weekend one in Edinburgh And it was, I couldn't hear myself speak for people shouting Yas Queen at me. (laughs) I could have said any, I could have said, the paperback's out in February. And I would have been greeted with
3: Yas!
2: Breaking news, Pandora. News about baby turtles. I know this is something you feel very passionately about. I've actually watched them hatch before. I know. In Jamaica. Climate change means that the loggerhead sea turtle population is now almost entirely female the sex imbalance has been triggered by rising temperatures meaning that the sand the turtles lay their eggs in is warmer which results in more female baby turtles being born this might sound like a beautiful sapphic feminist turtle utopia and maybe it is maybe the turtles are very very happy to be without men turtles but the survival of loggerhead sea turtles is obviously now at risk the biological trend means that male loggerheads could soon disappear according to scientists
1: why are more female turtles born when it's warm so is it is it literally a temperature they're thing? they're like getting a tan that doesn't really work In keeping with your favorite topic Dolly which I truly never foresaw the high load turning into uh nor did I see you turning into a sort of less controversial Rolf Harris I have for you 10 facts about the sloth don't you love sloths Um, I mean, this is quite a sweet picture of a sloth right here, actually. Have I made this up? I thought that a sloth was, like, your spirit animal. No, it's an otter. No, no, I'm an otter. Yeah, I'm an otter. Um, sloths are three times stronger than humans. Wow. They poo a third of their body weight in one go. God, that must be satisfying. Especially doing a three-stone poo. (laughs) That must be very satisfying. They can starve to death on a full stomach. That's rather unfair. They can fall a hundred feet without injury. God, they're like super animals. This one seems interesting. They could cure cancer. Hmm, That feels like that might be a little bit of an embellishment, that one. I think it means that there's something to do with their biological makeup that could cure cancer rather than they are going to be in the Marie Curie yeah, labs in coats. Yes. Doing the work. Yes. No one knows how long they live for. They're virtually impossible to study. Why are they virtually impossible to study, I wonder? I've closed the tab now, I'm not sure. (laughs) Because they're
2: constantly taking a dump. You can't watch them. I have more animal news, believe it or not. Scientists have found that learning to drive small cars helps rats feel less stressed. What in the world? Researchers at the University of Richmond in the US taught a group of 17 rats how to drive little plastic cars in exchange for bits of cereal. Dr Kelly Lambert said the rats felt more relaxed during the task, a finding that could help with the development of non-pharmaceutical treatments for mental illness. This is a brilliant payoff from the BBC report. The rats were not required to take a driving test at the end of the study.
1: I'm really riveted by that because I found learning to drive... Totally unrelaxing. So why are these rats... What have they got that I didn't have? Would cereal
2: have helped? Maybe you needed to be incentivised with some
1: Weetos. I don't think Weetabix would have made the experience any more enjoyable. Have I ever told you about my brief foray into driving lessons? I don't think I've told you about mine. Do you drive? Yeah, you do. Obviously, like normal adults. (laughs) Do you know what driving test I passed on, though? What? You have to guess. Seventh. Yep. Yeah.
2: Really? Yep. Yeah. Well that's kind of amazing, I guess, that God I have to say I've never heard that seven, that's quite a lot.
1: Horribly expensive hobby.
2: Farley passed on her first test with
1: fifteen minors. One more and she would have failed. Never got very many minors, but I got a lot of majors. What's the big majors? I almost ran over an old lady on a zebra crossing. <laughs> that's pretty much a no no in the history of Driving. <laughs> you can't let that one slide. Quickly tell me about your uh, brief foray into driving. So I
2: did 30 lessons. That's quite a lot. It's loads. And I was so shit that my driving instructor was flummoxed at how shit I was. He couldn't get his noggin around it. Every lesson. He just was absolutely perplexed at how I was getting almost worse than when I first started. I think that the driving certificate that I got from Legoland, aged 10, gave me more ability to drive than the 30 lessons that I did. And on the first lesson that I did, I was looking into what I thought was the speed monitor, whatever whatever that's called. Speedometer yeah and then there was another one next to it some sort of gauge anyway got them confused so i was driving at like 60 miles an hour without even realizing on a oh my god yeah i know road. exactly what you <laughs> and i he told me to break because he was freaking out and i i just absolutely had a nervy bee. anyway broke didn't really emergency really break fast at 60 gave him whiplash but he still carried on like a trooper lesson two he still picked me up then we got to lesson 30 he said it was an absolute waste of my money he was very nice about it but he just said this is, this is not this isn't going to work
1: it's not the best use of anyone's time <laughs> yes exactly is that the last man you, you have given whiplash to? very nice very bawdy like it I've
2: also got some very exciting news for any of our listeners who have a weakness for both surfers and musicians
1: I think if people like one they often like the other don't they?
2: Johnny Rubin, a bass guitarist, often seen busking in Newquay, Cornwall, also known as Dr. Funk. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Funk this week played a bass guitar while surfing. He said, I didn't think it would be possible, but just wanted to see if it could be done. Dr. Funk must have a, a lot of time on his hands. The guitar had been sealed using Vaseline and silicone. I don't know if it will ever work again," he added. "I got a few looks from other people in the sea, in the sea, but I can't believe how good it turned out." He now plans to go stand-up paddleboarding using the guitar as a paddle. Oh God's sake.
1: <laughs> Doctor Funk, do
2: you, how do you feel about that?
1: I think everyone should know, Doctor Funk.
2: If you'd seen him strumming on the waves, cresting a wave,
1: would it have made me lose my proverbial aged eighteen? darker side of the moon how would you have felt probably would have been quite into it probably would have thought it was quite natty yeah now just, i mean it's not not natty do you think you'd shan't get a job now no
2: <laughs> <laughs> definitely not what i would do definitely not what i was thinking <laughs> <laughs> and if any listeners are still looking for their halloween costume look no further we've found one journalist james bezenville Tweeted a photo in his Halloween get up, which was a wonky wig to look eerily like Claire, Fleabag's sister, with her haircut that made her look like a pencil. Sean Clifford, who plays Claire, tweeted, Tell me there are more of you, followed by lots of pencil emojis.
1: I'm very sad to be totally assuring Halloween this year, especially because I would make a great pumpkin.
2: Stun all the work. Yes, now. you have. I saw a woman the other day tweet her friend's. Halloween costume he who's heavily pregnant and she wore she wore she was a giant avocado with a hole in the middle and that and
1: her stomach was the stone oh that's wonderful it's wonderful I bet you always go as a sexy cat every fucking year
2: and I love it you're <laughs> wearing a sort of sexy cat boots today actually <laughs> I know I do have I've got the old ears in mothballs and I did think about taking them out for today um but no I'm not something happens I don't think I've been invited to a Halloween party
1: since I was about 27 I'm going to have one next year are you yeah (gasps) that would be so great we're going to go for it next year I've got two new words for you gradualism by Gabby Hinsliff have you heard that what does that that mean no she was using it in the context of how Extinction Rebellion was saying gradualism doesn't work so the idea that progress is incremental yes I just I was miming that (laughs) Um, and instead, the only way that we're going to achieve stuff is um, radicalism or instantalism. <laughs> I'm just making them up here. But I liked the word gradualism. Yeah. I think that's quite is that, interesting. Is concept. that environment-specific? No, I don't think so. And I actually think you could apply it to a lot of society now: how there's quite a lot of impatience, rightly or wrongly. I won't go yeah. into that debate. Yeah. Um, that can lead people to feeling like they're really over-gradualism. Mm. Maybe as well it's because everything's happening faster, on Mm. demand, life, instant gratification. So gradualism is sort of becoming out of favour. And also with the climate, it's like a desperate situation, so that's Yes, with
2: the the environment, I totally understand. That's an interesting idea in terms of what it says about kind of collective human psyche because Mm. part of me thinks that's encouraging and then the other part of me thinks maybe it is slightly slightly depressing because maybe instant gratification culture means that that idea of every day doing something small, sustainably and long term to try and make the world a better place for everyone, people just don't want to engage with it because it's not visible enough instantly. And that worries me because I think that there is so much progression that has to happen in radical extremity there is so much progression for it to be long-term and effective that has to happen daily
1: and slowly with commitment it's a really interesting point about the visibility i haven't thought about that i would say i'm a gradualist just because i think i'm a gradualist like in general i would say that my outlook is gradualist because i think if we don't sort of live through things Mm. and as you say um That that's kind of like it's part of the process. Mm. Progress is process is progress. Very good. Another one for you. Soft ghosting. Oh, I'm interested in this one. What's that? When someone likes your message but doesn't reply. Men do that to me all the time. Is it something that works on WhatsApp? I know you can heart a message on iMessage. Okay, let me be. Can you heart a message on WhatsApp? No, let me be clear about
2: this when I say men do this to me all the time I don't mean if I'm dating someone I mean people who I send weird fan messages to on Instagram (laughs) DMs
1: oh it's the it's on Instagram you can do it yeah I find it quite (laughs) it'll literally
2: be me being like hey groovy new album seen and liked never a response
1: this groovy thing is getting out of control um I think it's worrying when people think that liking your message counts as a reply yeah don't be so lazy Yeah, I'm not suggesting that the people that you're harassing via Instagram should do any more, if even like your message, I wouldn't want them to encourage you. I know. But when you just message a friend, I don't do this much, but if I message a friend on Instagram and they hearted the message but didn't reply, Mm. I think that's So lazy. Next time you come to see me, I just want to open the door.
2: (laughs) I'll just I'll just, just heart I'll just slip a heart through the letter Just stand and give a thumbs up through the window. Do you know what I've just realised because you and I WhatsApp so extensively, occasionally I will iMessage message people and sometimes they do the old heart because it is
1: an option on iMessage. It, it is. And what's really annoying is I only ever iMessage message people that I'm not intimately familiar with. Yes. So the Mothman <laughs> uh the uh acupuncturist I've just started trying. The, the um, EDF <laughs> appointment, and I frequently end up hearting and then having to unheart messages to them. It's quite easy to do. There's also an even more pathetic one that I hate that people sometimes do
2: to me on iMessage. When I say something, I'll be honest, I think incredibly funny, and they just do this button that says "ha ha" next to it. They don't even they don't even give me the courtesy of a lol. They don't even throw me that.
1: Horrible. Would you rather that or an emoji?
2: Definitely the emoji.
1: I prefer the emoji. Emojis are still good. What emoji
2: strong. do you do you live for when someone responds with the emoji and you're like, oh, score.
1: Uh the face with the blushing cheeks covered in hearts. How funny I was gonna say exactly the same thing. It's just filled with love. There's something that feels
2: really genuine about that one, more than the heart eyes. I love how worrying that
1: is that that's what we find really genuine I find, I find that... Gen- it moves me. It moves me, that one. In more serious news, 39 migrants were found dead in a lorry in Essex, having been smuggled in. One of the families of a Vietnamese woman who was amongst the uh, migrants found dead had paid £30,000 for a VIP trip to the UK after being told it was a safe route. And Harvey Weinstein has been making all the headlines in the last week. Did you see he went to a comedy talent night? I couldn't believe that story. And then the way the promoters dealt with it was terrible. Several of the female comedians did address it from the stage or went up to his table and a few of them got chucked out. There are accounts from the comedians who were chucked out of how he
2: commandeered and controlled the situation and and it sounds like they they were kind of just shoved out, really. There are a number of things that I was so intrigued by with this story. I was really, I have to say, I was really intrigued by it, Of all the places to pop up. The first is that he was there and I saw the pictures. It wasn't an exaggeration. I was like, maybe the report is just exaggerated with a harem of young women. Is
1: that who else was on his table? It was Just women. I saw a picture of him looking almost blank and implacable, yeah. just staring at the stage with a bottle of water. Yeah. I didn't see much else than that. Did he, did he react at all? Not that I could see, not in the
2: reports. But the the other thing I find interesting, and uh, this might be a controversial stance, Harvey Weinstein cannot cease to exist. He can't. And we need to find a way moving forward of how we deal with when these men monstrous enter, the public perpetrators... Closed. Because, in a civilized society we can't make them they can't vanish they have to continue to live and trying to work out how we negotiate that in a way that's completely fair and appropriate to the women whose lives he's ruined is just such a difficult thing and to for for him to definitely be aware that that's where we are culturally and to choose for his first like proper public outing to be seen to be a Women's stand-up night for
1: emerging female comics. What the fuck? Chicky was working on a piece about himself for the Onion. Because I <laughs> feel like this is probably a really stupid question, but why is he not in jail? Has he had his trial yet? No, he
2: hasn't had his trial. He's taking absolutely ages. Yeah, I just found it so insane and perhaps so telling of the level of narcissism and entitlement that you're dealing with it with a character like that for that to be the first public outing it's just it's completely mind-boggling it was bizarre what's in the mailbag this week doll we had lots of young listeners write
1: in to confirm that chillax is very much not having a comeback in their universes i thought as much so i don't know what the oed's playing at adding that for 2019 (laughs) And we also had lots of emails from listeners who have experienced a miscarriage
2: saying that they found the article The Sadness of Miscarriage Builds Up Like Soot by Lucy Pavia that we mentioned on the show last week to be a very comforting read. And I've seen as well that article since its publication seems to keep building and building momentum because it's obviously something that so many women are desperate to read about and it's very much resonated online so i'm glad that so many of our listeners found comfort with it one listener wrote in about this great campaign called cards of acknowledgement uh, which has been launched by the miscarriage association the goal of the campaign is to normalise the conversations around miscarriage and help friends and family of the couple find the right words at a time when there are none they have designed four cards that can be sent to people who've gone through miscarriages, ectopic or molar pregnancies and you can buy the cards online through Postmark and all of the proceeds go directly to the Miscarriage Association we will share that link in the show notes and I just think that's such a useful service because every woman I know, every couple I know who've gone through that have said that The thing that is so helpful is when people feel comfortable enough to speak about it sensitively with them rather than just brush it under the carpet. So I'm really glad that one of our listeners flagged that to us. Off the back of our lovely meandering waffle that Pandora and I (laughs) indulged in last week about new words included in the OED we were also told by a listener in New Zealand in response to my proposal that beer blanket should be incorporated into the OED that the phrase is very much used in New Zealand another listener wrote in to say she calls it a lashmina which I very much
1: liked <laughs> like the pashmina I enjoy that what have you been enjoying this week Panda? I have been enjoying and I don't know how many people realise it's still going actually because I think it had it's real heyday as a lot of series do at the start but I have been really enjoying The Affair love that programme I think it must be on series 5 now
2: even if it is rubbish now I don't care because the last couple of series I haven't loved but just Dominic West and Mom
1: Talk. I just tune in every week So series five, I think, is as good as series one. Wow. It's now all in LA and Noah Soloway is having his own Me Too moment. And I think it's written really brilliantly. So basically he has a new book out called Descent about leaving his wife for his second wife, who's now not in the show and leaving their four children. And it's been turned into a Hollywood movie, played by some, you know, big Hollywood big shot. So to go alongside it, Vanity Fair profile him. And it includes a lot of stories from women who say that they had a relationship with him and it was an unhealthy power dynamic. And this book, while this Vanity Fair piece is out, a memoir by a young girl comes out called How to Break a Girl. And it's all about a unhealthy you know power play and the effects of that on a young woman between a professor and a writing student Mm. and the Vanity Fair journalist discovers that it was Noah that Mm. was teaching her but the bit that I found really interesting is when his 22 year old daughter meets this girl on a plane and she sits down next to her and says I'm sorry you had a bad experience because they nothing happened between them, nothing sexually happened between them. She said that the way that Noah made her feel about her writing and herself was enough to make her quit the course, quit university. She had a bad patch of depression, and she says it was all about how this was just an example of um, how women were treated by older, powerful men, the way he was very dismissive of her. Writing sort of unprofessional the way he conducted himself with her. Anyway, his daughter Whitney says, well, you just had a shitty time at university. You know, we all have shitty times at university and the collateral damage you've done to my family, you're you're ruining my siblings' lives, you're ruining my mum's life. And Audrey says, well, what about if the real damage to lives is when men can do that to women and then move on without... A second thought. She said, "You know, have you ever thought about what would happen if young women weren't always instantly deferential to older men? What would happen if we put our own needs and our desires first? And it makes Whitney think about a relationship she's been having with an older man, mm-hmm. where herself is subsumed by um, what she thinks is attraction for him, but it's the the respect and the when the respect and the fear. So muddled up with one Mm. another, and they almost become like the same thing. Mm. I haven't seen a fictionalized narrative about what's been going on, but like the more the nuanced, Mm. you know, not your Harvey Weinstein's or your Bill Cosby's, but just the as a man who has enjoyed an immense amount of privilege and has had an immense ego and is now having this reckoning of where he's having to think about the way he interacts with women. Mm completely and the script is written brilliantly I really implore anyone who just really enjoys I suppose shifting social dynamics but also the way a family um, talk to one another in a crisis the way a a couple who used to be together navigate this kind of crisis when you know Noah's ex-wife only ever knows one way of relating to men as well Mm. and this is this way that this this girl that's written this memoir is is challenging it's a very interesting reflection of what's going on at the moment and I just wanted to flag it because I think a lot of people won't realise it's still on Sky Atlantic do you know what happened They,
2: they, they slightly fucked it with that series that was a bit black swarm when he stabbed himself And I think that that put a lot of people off. And actually, I think that... It was very Black Swan, you're right. Yeah, that that series and that particular narrative thread was a bit of an anomaly for the rest of that drama, which I think is really, really, really good and very subtle and very plotty while also being very slow to unwind in terms of various psychological studies. So I would love to watch that. I don't have Sky, can I just come and camp out at your house and eat your pizza and be your adolescent daughter?
1: Always. (laughs) I'll get some veggie pizza in for you. Thank you. Also this week I read a book called The Examined Life by Stephen Gross, which my best friend gave to me for Christmas in 2014 and very rudely, I obviously put it on my bookshelf and totally forgot about it. And then I opened it. It's quite slim and it's the Examined Life, How We Lose and Find Ourselves, and it's written by a psychoanalyst after 25 years of treating his patients. Um, his patients are often people with um, quite going through quite extreme periods of difficulty. So they come to see him every day for an hour. So it's a very intense therapy. Yeah. So the work that they do together is very intense. And it reminds me of the work of a philosopher called Milan Kundera or... Alan DeBotton, who, as regular listeners will know, I'm really obsessed with. It's written really simply, but just constant revelations, really enlightening. He talks really enlightening about human behaviour and I think as well about how a reminder of the multiplicity of human behaviour. So there's a man, for example, who comes to him because he broke off his relationship with his fiancée and then spiralled into this depression and... Um, he didn't know why he'd broken off the relationship with his fiance. He thought he might be gay. But nothing in his life or his mind actually related to that. So mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Gross is trying to figure out, well, if it's not that you think you might be gay, let's try and find out why you felt the need to end what seemed like a really good relationship. And it basically transpires that this man is lonelier when he is with someone than when he is not Mm. so it was not that he was depressed about breaking up with his fiance because he actually felt better for it he was depressed because obviously in this world and I am someone like this I am like this most of us are social creatures we like being loved Um, most of us like being in a relationship so a particular a particularly intimate type of love so he sort of hadn't really found a way of placing himself in the world and He tells Stephen Gross, I thought, this really wonderful story about um, Kafka in illustration of how he thinks he's feeling. Do you know the story of Kafka and Felice Bauer? For five years, Kafka was intensely involved with Bauer, sometimes sending her several letters a day. She lived in Berlin, he lived in Prague, not a great distance even then. But during the five years they were engaged, they only met ten times, often for no more than an hour or two. If you read Kafka's letters, Michael said, it's clear that he was usually distraught, Anxious about Felice was going, who she was seeing, what she was eating or wearing. He wanted instant replies to his letters, and he was furious when he didn't get them. He proposed twice and broke it off twice. The wedding never took place. Michael said that for Kafka, separation from Bauer was unbearable. The only thing more disturbing was her presence. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Mm. I folded down so many pages like I that. i love to read that book. Absolutely brilliant. You'll zip through it, and it but it will stay with you for ages. And actually, having just talked about him, the other thing I really wanted to recommend this week was Alan de Botton talking about philosophical concepts of failure on Elizabeth Day's podcast, How to Fail. I loved that. Absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I'm a big fan of Alan de Botton, as I said. Um, love his first book, Essays in Love. He's actually got a new book out now. So he talks about the role of religion um, on the podcast and says whether it's you know buddhism or christianity religion always played a role in reminding us that we are fallen creatures imperfect um who cannot always lead happy lives but as we become an increasingly secular society and more importantly with a scientific world view that view is now rejected by modern society and he says that america and the american dream i suppose is founded on the idea that we can do away with failure completely and make this life perfect
2: and i love what he said as well when he said, because it's a kind of larger conversation, isn't it, where he said that we just need to embrace dips, mundanity, sadness, disappointment, particularly when it comes to relationships. And he said, he admitted, he was like, look, steadfast
1: bliss is what we all would like all the time, but we can't. (laughs) Yeah, he says, I'd take enduring bliss if that was available. Yeah. Um, He says this idea that we can sort of have, and this is actually something I'm really interested in, and I think it threads into quite a lot of my other work but this idea of happiness being something that we can have permanently um, is he says it's a lovely inspiring idea and it's also a deeply cruel idea he calls it one of america's greatest exports uh we definitely have it in the uk too the idea that life should be deliriously happy and the insidious damage of that he says we're built to enjoy what the greeks called epiphanies which are moments of temporal happiness i really like that mm. idea and I just wanted to insert a little bit here, which is on the concept of consolation and compromise and how we have quite negative views of those words, but neither of them are about failures. And I found what he had to say on that really
3: enlightening. If you say to somebody, I can't offer you a solution, but I could offer you a consolation, most people will go, oh, that's horrible. Give me the solution. I don't want a consolation. But actually, most of the really big problems in life, including death, have only got consolations available. And so we'd be better off putting some of our energies into consolation. The other word that we have a horrible time with is the word compromise. If you said, I'm in a job really in a way out of compromise, or I'm in a relationship and, you know, all things being equal, it's kind of a compromise. People would go, oh, that's tragic, that's awful. And we just can't live with that. And in fact, in many good lives, there are huge areas of compromise, and that may be okay, given what we're like and who we are.
1: What have you been enjoying this week, doll? I have two
2: breathtaking pieces of writing to recommend this week. Uh first of all Sophie
1: Hayward on aging for the Evening Standard. That piece was really well received, wasn't it? My sister in particular said that she too has entered the invisible age. Mm, I think it hit on something that I haven't heard
2: articulated so well that's this sort of nebulous doomy feeling that you get as a feminist that's very complicated. Um and she just, as Sophie Hayward always does, she just wrote about something so abstract with lyricism, but but with such earthiness and made, and made it so kind of real and funny. So it kicks off with her talking about her going to the hairdresser a couple of weeks ago. And when she is shown her new haircut in the mirror, she says she didn't get the feeling that she's always historically got of like, oh, this is what I look like when I make a bit of an effort. Still got it. We've asked Sophie to read a couple of extracts from the piece because we thought it would be nice to hear it with her own voice.
3: I saw my own reflection and immediately thought, oh, right, that really is my face then. Is this it? I wondered to myself, as if I was Carrie Bradshaw having a quiet nervo in a Vader. Will I never be transformed by a hairdo again? And then, though I'm embarrassed to admit it, a profound sense of sadness rushed through my body. And there it has lingered ever since, popping up sometimes when I notice another piece of my flesh and form gently slipping into middle age. I'm in my early 40s and mourning the loss of something I never knew I had beauty.
2: She then goes on to talk about the kind of insidious nature of patriarchal grooming and how it happens on a, on a very unconscious level, even when you think that you're actively not being groomed. And she talks about how when she was growing up, she was an ardent feminist. She was very, very aware that she didn't want her value and currency to be just in her aesthetics. So she worked hard on her value being so much more than that. And what she describes is a feeling of betrayal as she gets older she kind of heads towards middle age in that she now realizes that she only thought she didn't need validation of her looks and youth and beauty while she still had her looks and youth and beauty but when you look at the incredibly stringent beauty standards that we have As a woman, when you get into your 40s, I imagine you do start to feel invisible. And I imagine even as someone who thinks that that stuff doesn't matter, that that must be incredibly disorientating, particularly because, you know, it feels like your only two options as a woman are either danger and harassment or total dismissal of your kind of femininity and beauty and sexuality. And and also the fact that you think you don't want to be seen while you're being seen and then suddenly you have no fucking choice and you're not being seen at all and you realise oh maybe I actually quite enjoyed being seen and how how can we feel guilty about that when since age dot when we enter this fucking world we're told that the most important thing seen and not heard is being seen so this is what this article mulches through so well mulches good word right is that she's saying she's trying to reconcile her guilt and frustration and anger and disappointment about this and reassess the truth of how she's been moving through the world and that's what I loved so much and that's why it's so clever because actually what it's doing is really interrogating how much just by dint of being a young, slim, white woman how much she had a passport through life that she probably didn't even know she had She definitely didn't know that she had in terms of being an attractive woman who has a certain degree of male approval all the time. And also even beyond male approval, societal approval, that basically she looks a bit like what we're told is acceptable as the female beauty standard. And I just take my hat off to her for being self-aware enough to examine this so truthfully as well as with total grace. And I think we should insert her final paragraph because it's such a funny payoff. And Sophie Hayward is a brilliant writer for so many reasons. But I think one of her crowning features is she is queen
3: of the kicker. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I want to be sexually harassed. If such a phenomenon had never occurred in the world, I'd hardly be inventing it to give us ladies a little treat. But after a lifetime of being pushed up against those reminders that I was a woman, or perhaps that I was meat, it's as if the pressure I was leaning against has gone, and I might fall right over, like Delboy as he plunged right through that bar. I know you're only supposed to use Fleabag as a comedy reference nowadays, but I can't help it. I'm starting to show my age.
2: I also adored the journalist Suzanne Moore on Deborah Orr, the late journalist who we discussed in last week's episode. And it's not only a piece about Deborah, but about their friendship. They were very close friends who knew each other for a long time. The piece begins with her talking about how they met, which is that Deborah commissioned her. She writes, We could have been competitors, but something much more magnificent happened. We became co-conspirators. My success was her success. Hers was mine. And she does that wonderful thing, which is, I think, an expression of really true love when someone dies, which is she is so forthcoming about how difficult Deborah was, as well as how wonderful she was. She talks about Deborah ringing her once angry because Deborah had seen one of Suzanne's exes out at a party and headbutted him (laughs) in her defence and ended up with a bruised nose. And she also talks about how argumentative she could be and how she would turn up, regularly turn up for dinner parties, drink too much whiskey and then berate the host. The bit I found most moving was uh, the last few paragraphs, which was more about the end of Deborah's life. One time we were getting on a plane from India and she was going straight from the airport into the office. She was wearing a bikini and tiny sarong. Are you going to wear, you know, clothes? I asked her. Ah, she said, relax, Suze. In the days before her death, I told her to relax. She was alive through sheer strength of will and wanted so much to be with her boys by the sea. As it so happens, I knew when to be there, though I'd expected the last message from her to be, why don't you fuck off? I've had a few of those for being an interfering cow. Deborah ill was still the essence of Deborah. Actually, the last text was, you are Saturday to me and my Friday night. I'm so very glad I was there to tell her stories, all of them true, about all our crazy times. I'm writing this by the light of the beautiful lamp she gave me. She had the best taste of anyone I have ever met. Oh, Deborah, in all her complicated glory, she was wild, untamed, never not true to herself. Who among us can say that? I asked her in the ever-changing light of the big brightened sky as the sun glinted on the sea and I saw the small boat out on the horizon. I just sent it to all my female friends the minute I read it because i just think it's such a beautiful ode to the sisterhood that that can that can occur between two women and how incredible it must be to be two women who've known each other as young women and as emerging journalists galvanized young women in the world and then as mothers um and then as middle-aged women and going through all those kind of incarnations of self Suzanne talks about reading Andrea Dworkin at her wedding and being there for the birth of her first child I just think about how important the women are in my life and how well they know me and how understood I feel by them and how lost I would be not just now but I can't even imagine having known so many versions of each other at that point in life how difficult that must be. And I'm just so grateful to Suzanne Moore for writing about female friendship in such a clear-eyed and beautiful way, but also for writing such a wonderful tribute to a wonderful journalist.
1: It's such a lovely line that you are my Saturday and my Friday night. Finally, another female friendship that I would like to celebrate is the one
2: between Jane Garvey and Fee And I'm not going to say any more than fortunately continues to be the highlight of my week and i just wanted to insert this clip of them doing absolutely top tier perfect waffling in the most recent episode
0: i've rubbed my eye and actually put makeup on today do you ever do that Put makeup on. Well, about and then about
2: just, twice a year. Ju- yeah, just completely forget
0: you've got it on. I like to even out my skin tone with foundation. <laughs> do you? <laughs> yes, and I primer. Oh, and primer, whatever the hell that oh, is. I, you know what, I was going to ask you about that. Just you know, all the language surrounding the makeup mm, as well. I'm obsessed. The with one that. that really, really annoys me is targets. It targets the seven premature signs of ageing. It doesn't target target anything. They need to be targeted. You put it all over your face. It's not targeting. Who's got time to
1: target? First it's thing just, in the morning.
0: It's a lie. It's the misuse of a verb. I hate to say this, Fiona, but makeups—it's all a bit of a con. Oh no, I know it's a con, but the just the extensive. So they have mega meetings, oh, don't they, they to have decide meetings. that kind Their of language? The use of languages—it's it's brilliant. There is a brilliance there. Yes, because also they need to be slightly on the legal side of whatever of, scientific of claim they're making, <laughs> yeah, don't they? Really they? Do. Which is why oh, yeah. it's targeting <laughs> the seven premature signs. What are the premature? signs you of ageing. You're I targeted or you're not. an Olympic pole vault gold medal, <laughs> but I haven't actually achieved it yet. <laughs> but who knows? I'm going
1: to keep on going. Support for the Hilo comes from Stripe and Stare. Stripe and Stare have been called the
2: most comfortable knickers in the world. I have three pairs of them, and I have to say, I do know that I'm in for a comfortably sheathed Jaxi on the days that I pull them out from the knicker drawer.
1: Stripe and stare knickers don't ride up so there's no more hungry bum. This is a well-documented affliction of mine. I even wrote an entire article about it once. (laughs) So I'm always happy to hear of anti-hungry bum undergarments. They're so comfortable you forget you're wearing them, leaving you free to take on the day. Can I tell you a secret, Dolly? I was wearing a pair this morning. Why aren't you any more? Because I like to feel loosey-goosey and easy-breezy for the high-low record. (laughs)
2: Every pair of Stripe and stare is a pair of guilt-free ninnies because they are sustainably sourced. Only 2% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced, which is pretty shocking for a product that we all wear every day, unless you're a real dame, in which case... Hola! I I take both my hat and my knickers off (laughs) to you. Stripe and stare knickers are sourced from beechwood trees and are softer than cotton, use 95% less water in their
1: production and give no VPL as they lie perfectly flat against the skin. Stripe and stare have been a hit with the press, having been recently described by the Evening Standard as insanely cool and described by the Telegraph Stella as the comfiest knickers around. Pandora Sights describes them as the knickers I wear every day. And no, I was not paid to say that. low listeners can get
2: 20% off their knickknacks by using the code high-low on www.stripeandstair.com at the checkout. They're also available at Selfridges and on shopbop.com for international listeners.
1: Many thanks to Stripe and Stare, both from us and our bottoms.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Today's author is Louise Callahan, Middle East Correspondent for the Sunday Times and the winner of both the New Journalist of the Year Award in 2017 and the Marie Colvin Award at the British Journalism Awards in 2018. She's just been nominated for a Foreign Press Award. She is also the author of Father of Lions, a funny and moving book about a determined zookeeper during the ISIS occupation of Mosul in Iraq between 2014 and 2017, which is out now. She's currently based in Istanbul and is back from covering the war in Syria. Louise, welcome. Hello. Could you start by telling us a little bit about when you started to cover the war in
2: Iraq and how your work led you to meet the father of lions, Abu Laith, and what made you want
4: to tell his story? The 25th of October 2016, that's when the offensive began to retake Mosul from ISIS. So for years, ISIS had controlled this area, the absolutely massive, across Syria and Iraq, of the size of the UK. And then now the battle was starting to kind of oust them from that area. It was the Iraqi army and lots of other forces, including Britain and, and US air power as well. I was I, on the front line with the soldiers there. And every day, you know, we push further into the city and, you know, it was just miserable. There's people streaming out who are like happy that they've survived and, you know, that they're liberated from ISIS, but they're also terrified and their homes have been destroyed and, you know, families are fleeing. And and so every day I was seeing all this incredibly miserable stuff. And then one day I'd heard a rumour that there was a zoo in the middle of the city. And I think I'd seen like a couple of blurry photos, but I wasn't really sure what what I was going to find there so we turned up and you know like one or two days before ISIS had been pushed from the area and it it was still really dangerous there were like mortars landing not too far away and and ISIS drones were flying around I walked into the zoo and there were all these kids there running around and there was a couple of people standing around next to these cages where there was a lion and a bear and they looked sort of half dead but they were alive And they were just these local people who'd who'd kept the animals alive the whole time, like during ISIS and then during this battle, which had been going on for ages and the animals had been starving. And they told me, these people, that that they'd hated ISIS the whole time uh, and that they were thrilled that they were gone um, and that they'd taken their food and given it to the animals to try and keep them alive. So I was just, these people were just amazing. It just sort of came from there.
1: And these animals were Zombie the Lion and Lula the Bear that we get to know very well in Father of Lands. When we think of Islamic State, we think of ISIS, but to the Iraqis, they are Daesh, and you also talk about Muhajiras. I think this might sound facile, but I think often people get really confused about the details and war zones and are scared to ask. So for our listeners' sake, but also ours, I wondered if you could explain a little bit about the difference between those terms and also the differences between ISIS and al-Qaeda, who are all radical jihadist groups, who want to rid the world of the threat against Islam, but they operate slightly differently.
4: Most people in the West would call the the group that we're talking about ISIS. So that's the Islamic State of uh, Iraq and Al Sham. And then in the areas where they operate, the people who support them would call them the Dawlah, and that's Arabic for the state. People who don't support them would call them Daesh, which is a, an acronym uh, in Arabic for the group's for the group's name, like Dawla al Um... ISIS started many years ago, but in its current iteration, when it becomes really important, is in 2014, when it expands uh, across Iraq and Syria and declares a caliphate. Um, and that, you know, is this kind of old Islamic concept of a, of a state, and the head of that state is a, is a caliph. And so this Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi declared himself the caliph of the Islamic State in 2014. And al-Qaeda... Are still operating today, but in different areas. Uh, they had a big falling out with ISIS some time ago, so weirdly enough, they don't like each other. I also wanted to ask you as well how the experience of the war in,
1: I mean, you're specifically writing about, you know, the experience of the war in Mosul, but how the experience of the war would differ if you were Sunni, Shia?
4: So ISIS is a Sunni extremist group. And they, they hate the Shia, they think that they're apostates. Don't like them at all. And so the Shia people who were living in ISIS areas very quickly left or, or were killed. It was the same with Christians, uh and of course the Yazidis who uh kind of ethnic minority group live in northern Iraq and, and parts of Syria. And so ISIS they have this like very essentialist worldview where they don't like anyone else and they want to just promote only their own like very medieval um
2: form of islam you've worked as a journalist for years which is about telling other people's stories as truthfully and as sensitively as possible but writing a book inspired by real life events must be an entirely different craft uh, how did you find the process and how much imagining did it
4: require so yeah it I loved doing the book because it allowed me to go really really deep into a story like a lot of the the issue sometimes when you're reporting from a conflict zone or or somewhere that's really really complicated is that you just don't as much as you try you don't get to give a a nuanced view of the situation uh as you want to there's just not enough space and it can get really overwhelming if you're trying to cram that much information into an article um you know it's just not going to happen it's not going to be readable either so for me writing the book was was amazing because I could go really really deep into these people's lives um and I think quite often when I speak to my friends back at home I'll say, oh, well, you know, loads of local people in in Mosul or or Raqqa, they didn't support ISIS. And people say, well, you know, they believe me. But at the same time, then ISIS, you know, ruled there for quite a long time. So I think a lot of people think kind of in the back of their minds, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe they didn't mind them so much. Or maybe there was a lot of local support for them. Um, And then so what I love doing with the book is that I could really go in and just, you know, really lay out how it was that ISIS managed to take power in Mosul, what local people thought of them, um, and show how complicated it could be. Because people might think, you know, that before ISIS was there, then the Iraqi government was in charge of Mosul, and there was this huge presence of of the army, and they committed loads of abuses towards the local population. I think that's a
1: really interesting thing that you do introduce in the book, is it it hasn't been hard ju- just when ISIS was there. It
4: was hard before and it's been hard since. Right, exactly. So for, for some people, when ISIS came, um, you know, they were just like an extremist group. They weren't the ISIS that we know today. So they came in and they did things like they cleared away the roadblocks. So all of a sudden you could drive through the city. So people thought, okay, great. But then after a while, they started becoming more and more and more brutal. And people started realising, you know, what they were really about and um, they started showing their real face and that's kind of when a lot of people in Mosul who might initially have been you know not supporting them but you know happy that the army weren't there that's when they really started getting terrified
1: and were you in Mosul more than you were in Baghdad or yeah Banker so it, or...
4: I also covered the uh, the battle in Raqqa but I spent more time in Mosul than anywhere else partly than anywhere else in iraq partly just because it's accessible but also i just i really love the city mm. um especially now there's no isis in it it's really improved it and um, <laughs> and it it's just like it's this ancient city there's a, the river running through the middle and um, there's these like amazing old city walls uh there's like big markets um you know where the make coffee and you know all these kind of amazing local things and that's another thing that I wanted to show in the book that Mosul's actually you know it's an incredibly difficult dangerous place to live but there, but there's amazing things there too.
1: Many of the rich flee to the region of Erbil in Kurdistan but Abu Lath and his family merely move up to the second floor of their house. I was trying to picture this like massive house they seem to live in with their brood of children sleeping all together on a sort of puzzle of mattresses in the living room and baking bread on the roof and they don't leave their house for months and Hakam's family who are much richer are confined to their downstairs bathroom for three weeks have to bury all their books in the garden or burn them and there are devastating moments in the book where the Muslawi's witness executions you mention a man in an orange jumpsuit and I think anyone reading will think of I instantly thought of James Foley and the terror of the checkpoints is an everyday reality. But alongside the terror of war, you tell a lot about the banal, what it's like for these Muzlawis to put their lives on hold, their jobs, their social lives, eating nutritious food or just like a variation of food and how boring how much of war was. Was it important for you to show these really extreme sides of war that they're at executions there was intimidation and a city that was shattered but there was also utter utter boredom
4: yeah that really really struck me when i was uh, when i was reporting it i was i remember i was talking to hakam who's another one of the main characters and you know he's this he's what my age is about sort of, 29 and He's a scientist, and he looks like he fell straight out of Bushwick. I mean, he wears, like, <laughs> like trendy glasses and, like, flannel shirts and stuff. Protein and, shakes, Jim. Oh, yeah, he loves a protein <laughs> shake. And um, But he was talking about how boring it was and how it went so quickly from him and his family having this, you know, the sort of Mosul's upper crust, to their world just restricting and restricting and getting smaller and smaller. And in the end, you know, it's just him, his sister, and his mum and dad. Stuck in their bathroom of their massive house, and you know they, they get so bored and pissed off with each other, and sit there playing on their phones all day. <laughs> you know, just it's a bit like you know when you're imagine being stuck with your relatives around for Christmas, but that, with that for like for weeks, and all you can the time, yeah. and you can and and also with the knowledge that you can die at every moment, but that's not something that you can think about for every second. Yeah. So you're so. So he was telling me about these long periods of of boredom where they just sort of lie around, and try and sleep and snap at each other. And then there would come an airstrike nearby. And Then all of a sudden they're hugging each other and then they're aware that this could be their last moment in their life. And that, so living on the edge of that of that stress for so long, I, I just can't even imagine it.
1: ISIS is very strict, obviously, particularly about women. And you talk about how women like Lumia, who were previously uncovered, find themselves choking in thick black chiffon, unable to see where they're going... The discourse around what Muslim women wear is political to say the least. Did you find that a lot of Mazlawis were wearing the
4: burqa against their will? Under ISIS, absolutely. Yeah. I mean before ISIS it was I mean I never went to Mosul before then, but from from what I gather speaking to local women, it was very, very unusual to be completely covered. Um, you know, to have your eyes and your hands and everything covered. Um there incredibly few people who did it and then so when ISIS took power then it was obviously this huge huge change for local women because I've, I've put on this stuff before and you absolutely can't imagine how difficult it is to move around or do anything you know it's not just the niqab it's not it's not just oh. covering your face it's also an other layer on top of that covering your eyes so you can't really see and then you have your gloves, and then you have your abaya, which is like a long robe. Another layer on top of that, which kind of goes over your head. So as soon as, as, soon as you go and move anywhere, like if you try and get in and out of a car, or that, it just kind of snares itself around you. Um, and then so you are physically just stopped from doing almost anything. And you know, in the summers, it's so hot, it can get up to 50 degrees. Is that the intention, that you are so physically curbed? I it's certainly the result. I mean, the it's just, even like if you're in a shop, you, you it's really hard to count out money if you're wearing these gloves. You know, it just stuff like that. And also, uh, ISIS had a rule that you couldn't leave the house without a male guardian. So it ends up in these kind of bizarre situations where you know a woman who's you know 35 can only go out with her 10 year old son in tow because he's meant to be. Supervising her i mean it 's ridiculous
1: there's this kind of amazing moment though where Lamia uses it, and she uses it a few times to her advantage where um, her husband Abilath is hiding because as long as as well as keeping the zoo open he 's also um, he 's a bit of a liability in sort of some other ways or you know drinking or whatever, and they come looking for him and he 's hiding upstairs and so she says i 've recently had a baby you can 't come in and they sort of you know vomit on the spot because she 's so unclean and it becomes her way of saying you can't come in I haven't got I haven't got a man here or I've just had this baby you can't see me in my in my state you recently described the discourse around isis women as hysterical everyone is free to dislike Shamima Begum and condemn her actions but to ignore her and her kind to let them rot is to play into the hands of Islamic state. what do you think the west is getting wrong when we
4: talk about young women who defect to isis I think it's such, such an important question at the moment because there's been this, yeah, as you say, mad discourse that's going on about what's going to happen with these women and the kids who, the women went and joined ISIS and they had children and, and then they are in Syria now, many of them completely stuck. I think we've been sold this false option that it's possible to leave them there and, and let them rot. I mean, it's not for a start, you know, we've just seen that Turkey's invaded a large swathes of Syria and... A lot of people just escape from prison. You know, it's, it, they can't stay there. Done. So we're going to have to do something with them. And I think that if you look at any of the kind of ISIS propaganda that's been published over the last few years, there's this thing that ISIS really, really want, and they've said very clearly, which is they want to create a divide between the West and uh, Western governments and, and Muslims in the West. So the absolute quickest way of doing that is, I think, by by branding. A uh, branding. Anyone with kind of concern. Any Muslims living in the West who have concerns with uh, you know the way that the war on terror is being handled or anything like that. Branding them as ISIS sympathisers or or saying that any of these women uh, that that we shouldn't listen to the reasons why they joined ISIS in the first place. I'm not saying any of them are right or reasonable, but we need to understand why these women joined ISIS. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to stop it happening again. Mm. And I think that there's this real reluctance to engage with that. We just want to say they're evil. They're horrible little girls. You know, look what they've done. And of course, some of them probably are. Um, I'm sure. And But it's also mixed in with, you know, looking for a place to belong. Mm. Even, I've spoken to girls who told me that they wanted a boyfriend. And some of them were, you know, 15. Yeah. Um, so I think that much as we can rehabilitate child soldiers, and much as we think it's important to look at the reasons, you know, how did this happen? What structural issues are there in society that let this happen? I think, I think we need to interrogate that. And of course, I don't think we should take them back and let them loose to roam around on the streets Um, And it's a very difficult situation legally. You know, which laws are we going to use to try them? Uh, Is there a sufficient legal basis uh, to put them in prison or to keep them under watch by the security services? But we we have to do something because they can't stay in Syria. That's so interesting that you said about the
1: legality around it. Is there no legal precedent for how you try?
4: There is some, but what I gather from speaking to lawyers is that there's discussions over making new laws um to try and try to try women uh and men who've come back. So there's a lot of discussion over, you know, whether it you know is it just an offence to join a terrorist group or obviously a lot of the things that they'd have gone through when they were in Raqqa or Mosul there won't be any proof of it. Um, a lot of people died. You know, huge, huge numbers of uh of these like foreign people who joined ISIS died during the um During the battle to to oust them from the cities. So, so much evidence has been lost. I appreciate It's really, really tricky legally, but there's absolutely no other option than to get them out of Syria at Mm. the moment.
2: Towards the end of the book, we meet the dynamic vet, Dr. Amir, the man behind Four Paws, an international rescue service for animals who helped outlaw the killing of street dogs in Romania and the dancing bears of Bulgaria. He sees the plight of Lula the bear and Zombie the lion and with the help of Abu Laith, seeks to liberate them from Mosul and release them into the world, a hugely complicated effort. I sort of fell in love with him and Abulath too as a huge animal lover. Can you tell us a little bit more about this almost mythical man?
4: Oh, Dr. Romero is so great. He's fantastic, and there's um, pictures in the book, which
1: is the best bit. When I came across <laughs> this. you get to see what Abu Lay looks like. You get to see what oh. Dr. Amir. You get a
4: Hakam. It's <laughs> oh, so cheery. Yeah, I know. Dr. Amir is hysterical. He's such a cool guy. Basically, he's a, he's a he's a vet from Egypt, and he moved to Austria when he was quite young. Um, and he just decided that he wanted to to work with a charity that rescued animals in war zones. You know, like a, like Ace Ventura. Um, (laughs) and he just, when the question comes up of, um, as it always does about, you know, why should we rescue animals in war zones? People are in trouble. Then Dr. Amir always says the same thing. He says that kindness should not be divided. That if you, if you care about animals, then you care about people and, and vice versa. Um, and then, so he's basically spent his adult life going into these you know, really dangerous or difficult situations and doing these incredibly logistically difficult extractions of of animals. And so he runs, um, well, his, the charity that he works for it runs various like reserves around the world where, you know, former zoo animals who've had a terrible time of it can go and live out their days. Um, and I just think it's, such, it's something that I'd never thought about before, um, before meeting him. I think if you'd have asked me a few years ago about whether it was worth, rescuing a lion, a bear from Mosul. Uh, I'd have probably said absolutely not. You know, why didn't they eat them if they were hungry? But <laughs> I'm starting... But I, talking to Dr. Amir, talking to Abu Laith and these people, I've started to understand why it is so important. Because I think for Abu Laith, like, looking after the animals, it gave him uh, a sense that he was doing something good. And that was a really, really difficult thing to find in Mosul. And it gave him hope. The fact that he could keep these animals alive and gave him hope and a willingness to carry on.
2: What was your working relationship like with Abu Laith, as the, you were kind of the viaduct between his very unique story and the rest of the world? Were your interviews with him and the other characters for the book, was that done through a translator?
4: Hakam and Dr. Amir speak fluent English, um, so we did everything with uh, with them in English. And then with Abu Laith, like, my Arabic's Pretty rubbish. So I worked with a translator called Sanger Khalil, uh, who's a really, really good mate of mine, and we've worked together for years. So um, me, Sanger, and Abu Leth were kind of, kind of a unit. We'd hang out and and chat away, and I spent, I think it got into the hundreds of hours of, of talking to him. And, yeah, of course, there was a language barrier, definitely. but And also a, a cultural barrier. Some things, you know, I, at the beginning, I, I really struggled with the concept of, of whether Abuelath really understood the consequences of, you know, he t- tells me something and I'm going to put it in a book and a lot of people are going to read it. So I kept telling him again and again, you know, people all over the world are going to read this. So if there's anything that you want me to leave out, you, know, you have to tell me. And, you know, I went I went through it with him so many times. But Aberneth was just loving it. <laughs> <laughs> he was saying, like, yeah, put in about my affair. I'd love to know a little bit about your life as a
1: foreign reporter. This is a question we ask Lindsay Hilson too, as it's just worlds away from our work and the work of so many of our listeners. Um, how do you divide your life between the work you're doing in war zones and the life of Louise? Do you ever get scared covering war,
4: lonely? Like, what keeps you going? Yeah, course, I definitely get scared. It'd <laughs> be pretty odd if I didn't. Like, there's definitely times when I will look back, even if it's just like an hour later on something that I've done, and think, what the hell was that? Mm. You know, that, that was. So I, I get scared in retrospect a lot. Um, at the time, you know, you're so pumped up with adrenaline, you don't really know what's happening. Well, oh, wait, I mean, you know what's happening, but you, you don't appreciate the gravity of it. You don't think, okay, I could actually die. But afterwards, yeah, sometimes there there have been points where I think, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't a great move. Um, but do you then- have people saying to you, like, how do you ever move alone, or do
1: you always make sure that you're with other reporters or with handlers, or do you have an editor in London who's saying, I don't want you going there today? How does it? Because I I know as well after what happened to Marie Colvin, there's a lot more. It's kind of stricter, isn't it, around where for monitoring quarters yeah. should
4: go. I, I think the industry's changed so much and, that, and that's partly uh you know, after after Marie's death. And also just um like communications have improved so drastically. Um so, you know, now I have my phone with me everywhere and like I have a sat phone. Uh, so even if there's no mobile signal I can contact people. I have Does it G- look like a Batmobile. Looks like a Batmobile cool. and I have um I have a GPS tracker which I sometimes, uh, like, sort of tape to myself. (laughs) I'm afraid I'm going to get kidnapped. And that gets really, uh, really uncomfortable. And then I inevitably, like, get bored of it and, like, put it in my bag and then forget in a car somewhere. Um, But, no, so communications have improved. And also the nature of the threat has changed drastically in the last, sort of, 10, 20 years. Before, you know, an armed group might think that you were a real asset to them you could tell their story. If they, if they wanted to, you know, flog their side of the story, they, they needed to invite a reporter in. Um, but now, you know, they can just get their own Twitter handle and be done with it. That's less, um, less of an asset now. Exactly. So we're less of an asset. And liability. Total liability. And, you know, as we, we saw, you know, Marie was killed by al-Assad uh, and, and his regime. You're a threat as a journalist. You know, you're, you're uncovering things that, that they don't want you to talk about so that's changed and then also there's a real increased awareness I think of risks in war zones and um, you know, Sunday Times is great they they put huge amounts of time and effort into my security you know you do these they're called hostile environment trainings where they take you to sort of Berkshire and kidnap you for a bit um, but then the, you know you also work with your team on the ground so that's that's the most important thing for me is having people that I trust on the ground it's fantastic to know that, the, that London's there and that they're looking out but you know it's going to be a split second difference sometimes so you trust your local colleagues um, more than anything else. So in that sense, so Sangha who helped translate the book, um, we've worked together for years, and um, you know we really trust each other. So we know when to make the call. What's too dangerous? What's not? I do. I do feel more nervous when I'm working with people I don't know well. Mm. Um, but you know, if we've got a, a solid team, and then you sit down and you make the plan, you you don't. You try not to leave anything to chance. I have all sorts of exciting map systems in my phone where I can like plan out my route and. You know, and you tell the desk in London, okay, I'm going to check in at this time, da, 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 and then you have a plan for how they're going to escalate if you don't call back. But, you know, I, th- I think there was much more license to sort of, you know, go, go off and just adventure around and see what happened. Uh, now we have to try and be much more specific with what we're doing and plan ahead. When we interviewed Lindsay Hilson, she said
2: something very interesting to us when we said, how do you, how do you keep your private life afloat as well as having this incredibly extreme precarious and I'm sure quite frightening and intense and full-on career and she said the reason that she she could do her career is that she had a very boring home life where she said that she was a, basically in her garden in Stoke Newington and making dinner for her husband um does that resonate with you at all is there is there a way in which you've had to kind of cancel out drama in your private life to afford you the kind of freedom to to have such an intense and and dangerous job
4: Yeah, I think after I'd been doing the job for a while, I realised kind of that that something had to give a bit. And I put much more focus on, um, you know, making sure that I get rest after long assignments. Because the thing is, you know, you can... You can see how it happens. You, know, you finish this long assignment. For example, you, you could be in Syria for, say, two weeks and you've just been operating on 120% the whole time and there's always a fear in the back of your mind. Are, am I going to get kidnapped? Is a, is a bomb going to land on the building where I am right now? You can't ever quite relax. Um, and that's common for all people in war zones. Some, some people live their whole lives like that. Um, but so it's then when you leave, there's this amazing feeling of relief and also this feeling that I've survived and you know so that gives you so much adrenaline so it can be really tempting when you come off assignment to just you know party straight for mm. <laughs> you know cause you're so shaken with, with what's happened and, and the fact that you're alive and but your friends might have died and you've seen terrible stuff so for for me it's been really important um, just to, to leave and to just take a moment mm. and to, to relax and yeah I live in Istanbul which is such a wonderful city and you know I just sort of go to my flat and Pass out for two days and do boring stuff like yoga and go for walks. Um, And sure, it's not like, you know, as glam as I'm sure foreign correspondents were of yours, but also, you know, I'm trying to, I, you know, I want to be around for a long time. You don't want to burn out early. Um, And, you know, someone like Lindsay Hilson seeing what she's done is actually really inspirational because she's kept this like this amazing balance going where she can do this she can do this job and, and stay sane and that's difficult to do it takes work and also I, th- I think it's different for the younger generation there's much more awareness now of people my age of of you know the effects of trauma and there's much less stigma attached to seeing a therapist and that's quite normal now I think among among foreign correspondents so that's a great change. It
2: was reported this week that the leader of ISIS was killed in Syria by American forces. We couldn't pass up the opportunity of having <laughs> you here as an expert to comment on this. What do you think the effect of this will be for Iraq and Syria?
4: Well, successive American presidents have had a go at killing high-profile terrorist leaders, haven't they? And it hasn't really changed a whole lot. I think for, um, you know, it was... In- Important to catch him, um, of course, and I understand why that's a priority, especially for the parents of his victims. For example, Kayla Mueller, who is an American aid worker, who was kidnapped by ISIS, um, and she was held captive and, and tortured terribly, um, even by al Baghdadi personally. And he also is known to have kept Yazidi sex slaves. Uh, and been highly involved in, you know, all of these terrible things uh, that were meted out by ISIS. He wasn't the simple figurehead. Uh, he took an active part in it. Mm. And so, of course, you know, that... The fact that he's dead, I, I imagine, and Kayla Mueller's parents have said that they're, they're happy he's dead and that, and that he's not in the world anymore. At the same time, is it going to fundamentally change much on the ground for ISIS prospects at the moment? No. I'm, I, I mean, earlier this year... Um, I, with the Sunday Times, uh, uncovered a cache of documents uh, in Syria which showed ISIS's plans for how it was going to keep going, you know, after the fall of the caliphate. So in, so earlier this year, then the last of the, what Trump likes to call the territorial caliphate um, was destroyed, and it basically ended up as this, like, you know, it was getting pushed smaller and smaller and smaller. This was an area that was once the size of Britain, became this sort of cluster of tents in the desert, um, and that's where the final ISIS supporters were, were sort of waiting, um, preparing to fight to the death. Um, and then it, there we, we found that there was, you know, even at this stage, even when everything was lost, they were still planning for how they were going to survive their sleeper cells, their attacks in the West, how that was going to continue. Um, and then, though, of course, like Baghdadi was a, a big part of the planning for this kind of thing and, and, and the commanding of this kind of thing, the fact that he's dead isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to stop those plans.
1: And what did you think of Trump's 48-minute speech about <laughs> There is, as we're sure you've seen, the Jimmy Kimmel splicing of Barack Obama's speech compared to... About the um, death of Bin Laden. About the death of Bin Laden compared to Trump's speech. And when Dolly first said, have you seen this? I thought, she was, I thought it was going to be like a Melania Michelle thing, you know, where Melania basically did Michelle's entire speech. And instead, the beauty of it, it's just how inept Trump sounds, like
0: Barack Obama. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. The United States launched a targeted operation against that compound.
2: They did a lot of shooting and they did a lot of blasting, even not going through the front door. You know, you think you go through the door. If you're a normal person, you say, knock, knock, may I come in?
0: After a firefight, they killed Osama bin Laden and took custody of his body. He died like a dog. But his death does not mark the end of our effort. A
2: beautiful dog.
1: A powerful
2: dog.
0: We give thanks for the men who carried out this operation.
2: And I don't get any credit for this, but that's okay. I never do. And here we are.
0: May God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America.
1: And I'm writing a book.
2: And there were 12 books all good very
1: well Louise thank you so much for coming on the Hilo Father of Lions is out now and it's just in time for Christmas so excellent Christmas present um, might not fit in a stocking but wrap it up just under a tree um, thank you so much uh, for coming on and for telling us so much about your work and your stories thank you thank you very much for listening to the Hilo you can tweet us at the Hilo show or email us the show at gmail.com Bye-bye. bye bye yeah. bye